Welcome to the Fitbox Podcast. This is your host, Joseph Frankie. Glad you're here listening. On our podcast, we talk about two main things. First and foremost, we interview members of Fitbox so that way you can hear their stories about how they're repaying debt, how they're saving for retirement, buying homes, all this type of stuff, really to give you motivation and some different ideas. That's the first thing we talk about. The second thing our podcast do is we take individual finance topics and go through them in more detail so that way you can say, does this apply to me and how does this apply to my plan? So if you have questions or you want to sign up for Fitbucks, you can do so in the show notes, fitbucks.com, build your profile, schedule a call. We'll be talking to you soon. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Ranke. Uh Today, we are actually going to be um, talking about mortgages and it's now a good time to buy a house and all that type of stuff um and it's actually done it's a recording of a live chat that we did in one of our uh, facebook groups um, i brought on an expert his name is josh from neo home loans uh, to go through some data to show people different statistics answer questions or whatnot um so that is uh going to be the podcast this uh this week is our interview with Josh talking about the home market, mortgages, all that fun stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And as always, if you need help with your financial plan, go ahead, build your profile, schedule a call, build your plan. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy. Welcome uh, to another uh, live event. Uh, This is something that we did uh, a few times right before COVID, and then we stopped doing them during COVID. Uh, but we are going to start picking them up again. And this one, uh, I'm excited for because this is a question that we've gotten a lot, especially over the last year. And now because of, of mortgage rates going up, inflation going up, home values going up, we get questions about mortgage and real estate all the time. And a few days ago, I think sometime last week, I put out a poll in the group and a lot of you guys had questions. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to go get an expert to come on and talk to us li- uh, live. Um, and that's what we went and did. Uh, Josh uh, is going to be joining us uh, from Neo Home Loans. They basically specialize in mortgages for medical professionals. So it's perfect for our group because, you know, everybody here, that it be OTPTs, NLPs, uh, SLPs, everybody is in the healthcare industry. That Most of you are in this, in this live chat and that would be listed on the podcast. Uh, so without further ado, Josh, welcome, uh, welcome to the live chat. Joe, thanks. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. Um, I'm so glad to, to speak to your, your audience. And I hope that I can bring a, a tremendous amount of value because as I talk to clients all over the United States, they're trying to figure out, you know, are we in another housing bubble? Is it going to burst? Um, and, and a lot of people know what's happening in the real estate market, but they don't understand the why. It just, it just doesn't make sense to them that, that homes continue to appreciate it. a year. And so my intention today is to bring hard data that will help you understand where we are and give you an inclination as to where we might be going. And and I I should just say, um, bring your questions. Feel free to drop them into the live stream if you're watching on live and we'll, we'll take those. Uh, Joe's already curated a bunch of your questions, which if I don't answer in the slide deck, We'll answer at the end, 
but feel free to interject and, and make this a real you know, conversation, if you will, because um, I, I want to make sure this time is valuable to each of you that are here watching. So Joe, just in terms of context, I want to give people just a little bit of a background. I've been in the mortgage business for over 20 years, but I've been a real estate investor for 23 years. I bought my first investment property when I was 21 years old. I bought an eightplex with my mom when I was 21 years old. And my, my mother, my, my wife, and myself, we run a family business. And we, we, we own and manage about 200 rental units in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and all over the state of Utah, actually. And so when I jump into a research project like this, it's not just to give a presentation. It's because I'm trying to figure out for my own investments and my own family money, should I be buying right now? Should I be liquidating my portfolio right now? What should I be doing? So the, the content that I've curated and the data is the same data that I go to time in and time out again when I'm trying to make a buying or selling decision. And at the end of the presentation, I'm going to give you a download sheet. We've put together five steps to help you investigate different markets all across the country because some markets I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Other markets, I think there's, there's still real opportunity. And I want to give you a roadmap to try to help determine it, which one of those markets you're in. So with that being said, I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to get into the, the data part of the presentation. And again, Joe, if you want to interject, if you have questions or you see questions on the, on the live stream, don't hesitate to interrupt me. Yeah. And I'll just make, you know, one, one quick comment on something that you just brought up right now that I think is, in, is important and why I, I was excited to have Josh on. Um, you guys that are watching this that have been with Fitbucks for a long time, you guys know this, that like, especially if you guys read our blogs, you, you don't see outside content coming in. Cause I'm, I'm very picky on what gets published and whatnot. Uh, Cause I think there's a lot of BS out there. I think there's a lot of, of people out there just pushing coaching courses and all that type of crap. So I don't, <laughs> and they don't really know what they're doing, but Josh hit on a very good point. He has himself over 200 units. Like, when he works with, uh, you know, with Neo Home Loans and he comes across with this stuff, he doesn't need to do it. Like he could be sitting back, you know, having fun on a beach somewhere, drinking margaritas or something. Um, like he does this because it's helping people. And that was one of the things when I first met Josh, it's like, you know, I was in the mortgage industry in 2008. So seeing people really getting screwed and stuff. And so that's why I try to avoid like, you know, mortgage brokers and whatnot. And Josh, where he comes from, it has nothing to do with that. It's like this content, the, the downloads that he told you to, to, that he's going to be posting. These things are actually things that work. Like he's done them. A lot of stuff that we tell you in terms of like budgeting and all that type of stuff, Fitbucks, like it's stuff that we do. And so that's one. I just wanted to point that out in case people didn't pick that up when you're saying that. Like, first of all, like you do this because you're really trying to help people. And secondly, like these, these pieces of content are there to actually really help them. It's not just some BS fluff stuff that you're trying to get someone to click on Facebook to come in and try to sell them, you know, a million dollar mortgage because it's like, so anyways, I wanted to make sure I touch on that. So Josh, go ahead and take it over and yeah, go from there. Yeah. Thanks for that kind intro. I'll, I'll just add one more thing on that. You know, I was raised by a single mother who was a serial entrepreneur 
And our financial life as a kid was an absolute roller coaster. And trust me, there were a lot of painful lows in that in that er, in those early years. And I I I found a book when I was in my teens, um, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad by by Robert Kiyosaki, and it was just like what I had been searching for my whole life to try to figure out money and try to figure out personal finance and 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 what that all meant. My mom reminds me that when I was 12 years old, I started watching CNBC because I was just fascinated with that ticker across the bottom. I was like, mom, I know the, the formula for money is in that ticker. I just got to figure it out. And, uh, and I read that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was like, I get it. Okay. Buy an asset that creates cash flow that's greater than the payment. I saw him lay out the cash flow quadrant. And I was like, I get it. I can finally see a path. And a year later, we bought our first property. And a year later, we bought an eightplex. And 23 years later, here we are. So yeah, thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's it. funny you brought up Kurosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad because I, when we first started Fitbox, one of our taglines, the main ones was treat yourself like a business. And everybody's like, where'd you get that? I'm like, I don't know. I've been saying that since I was like 12. And then I remembered, I was like, holy shit, it's from Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yep. <laughs> so That's get, right. Give Robert Kurosaki his, uh, his due on the show. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Take it from there. Um, I know you said you had some slides you wanted to go through. And, and again, some of the questions we're going to be answering that you guys sent us, like the impact of inflation, mortgage rates, all that type of stuff. Josh is going to be going through all that. So go ahead, Josh, take it from there. The questions were so good, and I hope to answer them all here. So, so here we go. Uh, the big question that clients that I speak to want to know is, is housing overvalued? But really, there's a deeper question than that. The deeper question, I believe, is is it going to go up or is it going to go down? And so I'm going to try to share some data points that I look at when, when making a decision. And, and like I said, eventually get you um, um, the, the, the home buyer um, plan or guidebook that we've created. But I want to start with inflation because Joe, you mentioned there was a, there was a question on inflation. And I think this is really, really telling. What we're looking at here is a graph of US money supply in trillions. And you can see back here, the graph starts in 1959. And it took roughly from 1959 to, let's call it about 2012. Um, let's call that roughly 50 years to get from virtually zero to 10 trillion in, uh, uh, in, in US money supply. And what's interesting, though, is that right about here, U.S. money supply just goes parabolic, right? So it took 50 years to get from zero to 10 trillion, but it only took from, let's call it 2012 to 2020, it only took about eight years to go from 10 trillion to 20 trillion. And those of you that are watching this on the, on the live stream and can see the slide, that graph just goes absolutely parabolic in terms of the amount of, of money supply being entered into the economy. And today, we have total monetary supply in the United States around $22.4 trillion. And, and that's relevant because of a quote from one of my favorite economists, Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it, meaning inflation, is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money 
than in output. So this graph reg registers the rapid increase in the quantity of money, which is the fastest increase in money supply of any civilization ever. You know, we never, we've $22.4 trillion in money and uh, we, we've done 150% increase in, uh, in, in about a 10 year span. It's, it's insane. Now, the, the last part of this quote is where I wanna, where I wanna tether this back to housing. So he says again, inflation is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. Well, what's the output? Well, as it relates to this conversation, output is new home construction because we're trying to figure out why in the world has housing been so um, uh, been appreciating at 20% uh, and just absolutely historic appreciation rates. Well, what we can see here is a graph of US housing starts, once again, going back to 1959. And you'll see there's, there's highs where we, we broke over 2.4 million housing starts. And then those were followed by lows and the housing starts got down as low as, you know, 900,000 a couple times uh, between now and, and, and going back to 1959. But then we had this really high heightened period of, of um, home building that happened right before the Great Recession. And then, of course, when there was an oversupply, there was also a demographic trough that hit us right here, which I'll, I'll get into. The housing starts went down to almost 400,000 a year, which was the lowest level that housing starts had been at for the last 50 years. But then it didn't just bounce back. Like if you look at, you know, there was a, a crash in housing uh, in 1984, uh, 83, 84, took the housing starts down to 900,000. And within three or four years, the number of housing starts was back over 2 million. But that didn't happen here. What, if you look at the, the average number of homes going back to 1959, it's roughly 1.6 million, somewhere here, if you were to draw just kind of a median line across things. And we didn't get back to the 1.6 million until 2021. So we dropped below the trend line of 1.6 million in 2008, and it took us till 2021. That's 13 years of new construction that were under the historical uh, new housing inventory numbers. And the National Association of Realtors, as well as some other um, data aggregators like Black Knight and what have you, they estimate that this, this construction hole is, has a resulted in a shortfall in, in US construction on residential homes of somewhere between four and 5 million homes that should have been brought to market. So if we go back to Milton Friedman's quote, we literally have a perfect storm. We have a rapid increase in the quantity of money and we have a historic trough in the amount of output in housing starts. And that's what has caused that's that the fundamental cause of why housing prices have have gone up so so greatly but that's not the only reason we have to we have to also you know look at this in context of okay you know housing starts are now getting back to their historical norms of around 1.6 1.7 million per year 
we know we still have that deficit of four or five million we're behind. But what does that look like in terms of active listings currently available for homes? So we can't just look at new construction. We need to look at existing houses as well. And what this chart shows is the Redfin um, active listings of homes for sale across all metros that Redfin serves, so across the entire country. And this graph for each year, this blue line represents 2019, and it shows the number of active listings starting on January 1st, going throughout the year and ending on uh, December 31st. And you can see there's kind of this normal trend where in the winter, you know, in December, nobody wants to list their home, inventory goes down. In January, it's cold in a lot of places across the country. Spring comes, kids get out of school, inventory peaks in the summer, and then goes back down in the winter. That's a nor very normal inventory trend. But what's insightful about this slide is if when we overlay four years worth of data. So we see that in 2019, which is the blue line, the housing inventory was roughly 1 million homes listed for sale. In 2020, that dropped about 10% to about 900,000. Then COVID hit and we had, you know, everybody working from home. My kids were being homeschooled. I'm trying to do presentations and meetings from home. We need a new house. We're, we can't do a school, a business, and a house and a dog in the same house. We need a house. So we had a big housing demand. And we saw a massive drop in the number of housing listings from 900,000 to below 700,000. And then to start the year this year, below 600,000. And if we look where we are right now, this is as of May 1st, 2022, there's 534,000 homes for sale in the entire country for a population that has 330 million Americans. That is not enough houses. This is a historical, savagely undersupplied housing market. And as long as demand exceeds supply and we have loose monetary policy, we're going to see likely continued real estate appreciation. Although I do think it's going to be lower because interest rates are going to go up. That's going to, that's going to slow demand. Uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. I want to get into what I view as the ma main primary reasons why we ended up in the mortgage meltdown and real estate recession in 2006-2008. So let's go back and let's look at some demographic birth rates going back to 1928. Because if we want to predict demand, oftentimes it's really helpful to be able to look at um, what the demographics tell us. So going back to 1928, we see that in the, in the silent generation, there was 47 million births between 1928 and approximately 1946. Baby boomers, biggest cohort on record, 76 million baby boomers born between 1946 and 1965. Gen X, which I'm a member of, 55 million born between 1965 and 1981. Each of these blue and gold bars, by the way, equal the number of births per year. Uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're color-coded based on the cohort. Millennials, 66 million, and Gen Z, 61 million. Now, here's what's really interesting. And, and this left-hand axis here, Joe, this is the you know, birth rates by millions. So 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million. 
Here's what's really interesting. In, if we overlay the birth rate over the average age of a first-time home buyer, which we know is 33 years old, we can look back and go, okay, 33 years ago, were demographics and birth rates improving or were they declining? And interestingly enough, if we look at what was happening in, 2000, um, in 2006, well, we had a reduction in the number of first-time home buyers because back in Gen X, which is 1965 to 1981, we had a demographic trough throughout the, the, the cohort of the baby boomer we had birth rates approximately 4 million for, uh, new births in the United States per year. And then that broke down and we see a demographic trough due to many factors. Um, some of the things are uh, broader use of, of contraception, uh, Roe versus Wade, woman's right to have an abortion. Uh, plus there's just, you know, that massive baby boomer cohort that you know, um, had a kind of a, just a normal slowdown, but the Gen X was kind of like a perfect storm where 33 years later, 2006, we were in quite the demographic, a demographic trough. Now contrast that to where we are today in terms of demographics. Today, the, the birth rate is increasing. Um, actually, I'm talking about 33 years ago, the birth rate was increasing. And that's, that's bringing, as a result of that, that's bringing first-time homebuyers to the market today. And now the, the birth rate for the millennials and the Gen Z is back up to almost 4 million a year. It's approximately back to where we were in the baby boomers. So if you count these years out going forward, you essentially have 20 years, 22 years, I believe it is, of really strong birth rates back up to about 4 million. So 2006 was a perfect storm. It was a perfect storm because we had a demographic trough. And we also had some, I know one of the questions, Joe, was talk about the quality of loans. Is there a, is there a mortgage bubble? We're going to get to that. But, but really, the, the, the mortgage bubble and the poor underwriting guidelines on top of that demographic trough was really what caused the, the, the Great Recession and the, and the mortgage meltdown. I want to make one other point. Because people always, you know, pe people ask me, they say, hey, it feels like we're in the same housing market as we were in 2006, 2008. Is this the same market? And what I would, what I would point to is that Americans are using their equity differently today than they were uh, before the Great Recession or during the Great Recession. And so this graph shows you the blue line is household equity. The green line here is the outstanding mortgage debt. That's really the key that I want to look at. And then the black line is the total value of U.S. housing. So the black line shows we have almost $40 trillion of, of U.S. housing value. And we have $12.5 trillion in mortgage debt. But I think here's what's really interesting. Going into 2008... There was approximately 11 trillion, maybe 11 and a half trillion in mortgage debt in the entire country. And the, val the total value of the housing supply was roughly 22 trillion. It dropped down to about 19 or 18 and a half trillion as, as uh, housing values went down. And so in 2008, there was 
roughly $12 trillion in equity. That's the difference between the indebtedness and the, um, the total housing value in the United States. But if you fast forward to today, from 2008 all the way to 2022, mortgage indebtedness has only gone up from 11 trillion to 12 and a half trillion. So Americans are not using their home as an ATM machine. I mean, check this out. In 2001, there was $5 trillion in mortgage debt. By 2008, there was $11 trillion. So mortgage indebtedness more than doubled in seven years. But since 2008, going back 13 years, mortgage indebtedness has only gone up $1 trillion, while the value of housing has gone up significantly. So there's a lot of equity in those in, in U.S. housing. Joe, I'll pause there for a second. Any, any questions about that so far? No, I mean, that, that all makes sense. Um, you know, like you brought up like the perfect storms. I'm going to be getting this too. Like you talked about the low mortgage rates. Because even nowadays, people like they're like, oh, the mortgage rate hit 5%. Historically, that's still actually pretty low. I mean, you compare it to long-term 50, 60 years, still pretty, pretty damn low. So money's still pretty easy when we refer to that. Things too, like, you know, we might touch on this a little bit later on. You're also the, the cash buyers coming in too. So there's all that coming in there. So it is the perfect storm. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but, you know, this goes to show you. So a lot of people, because I do get that question all the time, how does this compare to 2008? You know, 2008, as you said, I mean, that's a good reference. It's, it's an ATM machine. And yeah. I mean, that's what people were taking money out on. And a lot of people, I, I got a statistic the other day about, you know, the cash out refinances for last year was something like 400 billion, which was at the same amount that it was going leading into the, uh, to the mortgage crisis. And the article was talking about, you know, that's an added effect of inflation on the markets. That's what the whole point was. But people email me about, well, does that mean that we're adding, you know, coming into another mortgage crisis? And it's like, well, no. And here's the evidence of that. The equity, people have so much equity in their house that the only way we would have a massive mortgage crisis again is that if this, you know, $26 trillion of equity in houses went down, which means the value of the houses would have to basically tank, you know, over 50% a nationwide in order to get back to that housing value again, based on the current dollar amount for, for trillion. So, you know, the probability of that happening, maybe, but, you know, is housing prices going to go down? And I know we're going to be touching on that coming up soon, um, but there is not, it's not the falling, if it does go down, it's not the falling off a cliff like it was in 2006, 2008, where housing prices just, um, so anyways, I'm sure you're going to be talking to that. Don't want to say your thunder on all that. So yeah, uh, go ahead and, and take it away. Yeah, no, you make a you make a really good point that because the the gap between the 40 trillion in value and the 12 and a half trillion in debt, that gap being so large, even even if we do see a um, a, a slowdown that that causes negative equity, there's a lot of equity there that people have before they would have to fire or sell their homes. And if you go back to you know, during this kind of crunch time when uh, values are going down, but debt is going up, this is a, it's just a very different um, 
way that Americans were using their home equity. Yeah, and well, another point to that too. The one thing that it, you know I'll bring up that's majorly different because a lot of, of our listeners they know how income driven payment plans work for student loans, where you pay a small payment and the interest go gets added on to the loan balance. In two thousand and eight, or actually two thousand five, about two thousand seven, you can use those same types of loans to buy houses. And so, to Josh's point, not only were people using ATM machines, but all these first time home buyers were using basically like ninety percent of their house was that type of loan backed with a line of credit. So they were getting hundred percent financing. So as they were deferring their loan, their balances were going up and eventually the balances of the loans outpaced the, the increases of the home value. And so they couldn't do anything. They couldn't, um, they couldn't refinance out of those loans um, because their homes weren't as valuable. And, and that's what started the fire sell. But those loans don't exist for the housing market anymore. I kind of wish they did because I'd be using them, but <laughs> they don't exist anymore uh, to buy your house, like a primary house. So that's another reason why you're not going to, in my opinion, see it fall off the cliff. Um, but yeah, go ahead, uh, Josh. I know that you brought up another slide. So go ahead and keep going. You're so right. I mean, literally what you said is is exactly what this slide represents. And so what this is, is, is the housing credit affiliate oh boy, my mouth doesn't work, availability index. And it essentially measures how risky is the mortgage debt out there and how hard or easy is it to, to qualify for a loan. And you'll see you know, this, this zone here where the, the housing index uh, availability index was about 12. They say that's a reasonable lending standards. When, when, when loans were being issued in this time period, they had a pretty low default rate. They, in, you know, with historical, now we can look backwards and look at what their performance level was. They know that this, when the index was in this range, housing loans performed pretty well. Then you see the index, the housing availability index ticked up above 16, which was an all-time high. At this point in 2000, in its peak in 2016, 2006, you either had to fog a mirror or you knew you had to be able to spell your name, but not both. Either one of them would get you a home loan. And the industry just completely lost discipline around having, giving a loan because a borrower has proven ability to repay. They just, they totally lost sight of that. And there was this belief that housing only went up. And so if that's the case, we can go further and further out the risk curve in terms of issuing loans. And this housing credit availability index, they break down risk in two different ways. They break it down in product risk, and then they break it down in borrower risk. So product risk is exactly what you were just talking about, Joe. Um, I remember when there was 125% loan to value home equity lines of credit. So if you had a $400,000 house, you could borrow $500,000 against the home. What could go wrong, right? Um, they had negative amortizing loans. A negative amortizing loan would put you in a mortgage where let's just say the interest rate was 7%, but for the first two years, you only had to pay 1%, interest-only payments based on 1%. So instead of your mortgage balance going down every month, it was going up every month. It was a negative amortization. So the balance was going up, but wait, it got worse. 
they put you in that loan with a 1% minimum payment for the first two years on an adjustable rate loan. So every six months, every quarter or every year, depending on how your loan was structured, the rate could go up. So maybe you started at a 7% rate and it went up to 8% hypothetically, you're still paying them 1% minimum payment, but it gets worse. They put on a three or a five-year prepayment penalty and the prepayment penalties were three to 5% of the, of the loan balance. And if you prepaid your balance down or you paid off your home or you sold it, you had that big premium, that big prepayment penalty. So you were stuck. Oh, and by the way, you didn't have to prove your income. You didn't have to prove your assets and you didn't have to have very good credit standards. So these were the risky and, and, and people would stack these loans. They do a negative amortizing first mortgage with 110, 115, 125% home equity line of credit. I mean, it was, it was a bomb. Yep. It, was a, it was a weapon of mass destruction. And um, the borrower risk, let me just explain that real quick. Borrower risk is your debt to income ratio, your credit score, your payment history. If you've had a bankruptcy or foreclosure in your history, tax liens, um, if you can document your income, all of those things equal borrower risk. And so what this chart illustrates is that, you know, in that time period from really 2003 through 2006, when the, the house of cards started to come down, borrower risk went up, but really product risk was the culprit of, of, of the, the asset bubble or the, um, I should say the debt bubble. And if you follow that forward today, you'll see that the, you know, we kind of fell off a cliff, cliff there in terms of risk. But if you follow it forward from 2008 all the way to the end of 2021, so we're talking 13 years, there's literally no product risk because there's no, you know, loans don't typically have prepayment penalties anymore. They're usually fixed, uh, 30 year or 15 year fixed. And if it's an arm, it is a five or 10 year fixed and there's no, and there's no, there's no prepayment penalties. So the loans in and of, and you know, no 125% loans, no negative amortizing loans. So the loans that have the very low product risk and the borrower risk is low because you got to have a decent credit score. You got to be able to prove your income. Got to be able to prove your assets. Can't buy a home if you're one day out of a bankruptcy or a foreclosure. So the loans that are putting into the system are constrained. They have a lot more discipline. And that's, I think, one of the big reasons why we haven't seen a massive increase in the amount of total overall mortgage indebtedness. One of the other questions that we get a lot, and this shocks people, is how housing typically um, reacts to a recession. And the recession that we're all probably most anchored to in terms of our emotional anchoring you know, in, in investing, I always like to, to, to think about what, what are my emotional biases? Um, what am I anchored in? What, what have I believed so strongly that I just look for reaffirmment that I'm right about that belief? And one of them that I hear from, from people all the time is recessions are going to be terrible for housing. But in fact, if you go back and you look over the last six recessions, going back to 1945, in five of the last six recessions, housing was flat or positive. In fact, in all of these illustrations, they're positive, but some of them are barely positive. Like 2001 is up 3,000 bucks. I'm sure if we um, level set for inflation, you 
you know, I wouldn't exactly call that an up, but they didn't get they didn't get damaged. In fact, housing did surprisingly well. And if you compare how real estate did, residential real estate, if you were to overlay stock valuations during those those recessions, uh, you would have much rather have been in real estate than in equities during during those recessions. Trust me, uh, unless you were short the market. Two thousand eight, two thousand ten. Of course, that is the the recession that we're all anchored in and we know was terrible for housing prices. So the question is, how is this possible? Like how, what, why? Why would housing do well in a recession? Why did it not do well in the Great Recession and the mortgage meltdown? And I believe it's because in recessions, usually what the Federal Reserve does is they reduce interest rates. What does reducing interest rates do? Makes housing more affordable. Now, all of a sudden, if my job didn't get impacted by the recession, I'm looking around and going, wait a minute, I can move from the three-bedroom home with two garages to the four-bedroom home or the five-bedroom home with three garages and a pool, and interest rates are at 3% or you know half of what they were uh, a couple of years ago. That makes housing more affordable. And I think a lot of people decide to buy because of lower interest rates and affordability that buoys home prices during recessions. And of course, we already talked about, well, well why did you know, interest rates went down from 2008 to 2010 too? Why didn't housing do well? Well, demographics were in a full-blown retreat um, uh, um, coming from the baby boomers to Gen X. And you had this massive debt bubble um, your, your amount of debt as it uh, compares to the amount of equity was, was low. Um, and you had this lack of discipline around the underwriting standards and, and maximal product risk. So I believe if we go, I believe that the rising interest rates are going to cool this market and it's going to slow down appreciation, which is exactly what we need. It is absolutely savagely unhealthy for a market to continue to appreciate at 20% per year. It's terrible for first-time homebuyers. It's terrible for people who are buying, you know, moving um, across the country and need to buy a home in a really rapidly appreciating market. So I believe that interest rates are going to slow that down. And I believe there are some areas of the country that could possibly actually not just see decreased appreciation, but they could, um, excuse me, de uh, de decreased appreciation, meaning the rate of home increases slows down. It's like a car going down the freeway. We're doing like 120 miles an hour right now, and it may slow down to 50 miles an hour, but you're still having appreciation. I believe that's what's going to happen for most of the country. There are areas in the country that I think have have had such incredible um, asset appreciation, asset inflation, high cost of living areas that, that may actually have some depreciation. And that's why I'm gonna show you this housing guide here in just a minute. But I wanna zoom out and I just wanna show one last slide before I get to the housing guide. This is the national change in housing prices going back to 1991. And the point I wanna make here is that um, you know, if you hold one way to ensure against not buying a home at the wrong time and, and having, you know, some sort of a pullback in values is having a longer time horizon. 
if, if, if you're going to move into a high cost of living area and you only have a three-year time horizon, your risk is high right now. If you're going to move into an area that's not a high cost of living area and you're going to be in the home five years or more, you have kind of like some built-in insurance that even if you have a, a, a little bit of depreciation, eventually those housing prices are going to catch back up just like they did after the Great Recession, which was the, the first massive re reduction in housing values since the Great Depression. So time is your friend in real estate is my point. And, you know, you can see over, over 30 years, uh, U.S. housing is up 274%, 275%. And, um, you know, that, that, that's just housing appreciation. If somebody put down 5%, they got 274% appreciation on the full housing value. They didn't just get 274% appreciation on their 5% down payment. So, you know, it can be, it can be really fruitful long-term. Yeah. Just to interject right there real quick, because yeah. that's one of the, <clears throat> in the last three weeks with a lot of uh, schools graduating, we've been doing a lot of workshops. And one of the biggest questions I've been getting is, is should I buy a house right now? And to your point, it's a long-term thing. So like our, our default answer kind of to that is I'm always out there saying, Hey, manage your risk and return will be though. When it comes to real estate, it's like what you said. It's time horizon. And so this whole thing about, oh, well, I'm buying a starter home. I like, no, like if you're going to be buying a starter home right now, rent, like if that's your goal and you're just going to be leaving the property in, in a couple of years, rent. But what I tell people, the easiest way to decide on a lot of this stuff is what are two basic strategies? One is, is if you're looking at the home, it's kind of like what I did when I moved to Austin. Okay. Three years ago, the Austin market was hot. And I was looking at some of these numbers and I'm like, man, like this has a potential of going down over the next few years. You know, I didn't foresee COVID and all that type of stuff happening. But then, you know, I turned around and my, my wife was like, well, you know, you always say this, like, if you move into this house, if push came to the shove, can you see this staying in this house forever? And it's like, well, if the answer is yes, then eventually the house, even if it goes down the housing value will go back up in the long run. And that's why actually they call land the investment of the wealthy is because it's an inflation hedge. That's actually what land investments are for is inflation yes. hedge. So when we go through like our CFA materials and stuff, that is a primary hedge against inflation is real estate. Um, and so that's the typical strategy that I tell people is like, if you can see yourself, do you want to potentially move? Okay, maybe. But if you, if you got in a stance where you said, hey, this is my forever home, can I see myself living here? Fantastic. Like buy the property. Now, if you have another strategy, like an investment strategy, where you're like, look, I might rent this thing. Well, then start looking at like duplexes and triplexes if you're only going to live in a place for three years and then turn around and rent it out when you move. Um, so those are the typical strategies. I know, again, Josh, you might touch on some of those things, but I wanted to interject in there because I've been getting that question a lot. Do I buy right now? But it's very important that you brought that up, Josh. Like, is this something that's longer term or is this something where this is my starter home and I'm going to be gone in three years? It's like, yeah. No, I don't do that right now. Um, yeah. So anyways, I'll let you go ahead and, and pick it up from there. Now you're spot on. I mean, the longer the time horizon, the safer it is. The shorter the time horizon, the more risk you're taking on. And, and you know, there's a quote that, that I love um, that is uh, that it's not timing the market that tends to lead to success in investing. It's time in the market. 
And, and well, what does that mean? Well, the first eight Plex that I bought at 21 years old with my, with my mother, um, we, we, that property was yielding rents of about $285 a month. Fast forward 22 years later, that those units rent out for $1,595 per month. So, you know, the rents have essentially 5X'd and the value has 7X'd in that 20 year period of time. Um, and so it's, it's holding on to an asset like that over a long period of time that, that leads to, to wealth. And so another strategy to your point, Joe, is if somebody says, all right, could I, could I stay in this home for five to 10 years if I had to? Okay, check. Yes, I could. That, that limits your risk. The other question I would ask is, do you think you're going to be able to rent this house out for a positive cash flow? if you decided to, to upgrade and maybe keep that property as a rental property. And some people have appetite for that, some people don't. But I have seen a lot of, of first-time home buyers, medical professionals that bought their first house, did a 100% loan. Five years later, the rents had gone up so much that they turned that home into a $500 a month cash flow or $400 a month cash flow, and then used that cash flow as arbitrage to offset the, the, uh, the increased payment on the new home that they buy. So the longer the time horizon, the safer you're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, that's some of the stuff. A lot of you guys have heard me talk about that. Like with, with my place in Texas, a lot of people are like, why did you guys end up moving? And it actually was to your point. I mean, at that point in time, my wife had had her place in San Jose for 12 years. And so we had like $700,000 of equity in the house. And we took a cash out refinance, played a uh, paid cash for the house in Texas. And we rent the place in San Jose and the cash flow more. I mean, we, we cash flow off and that's after paying a mortgage, a property tax, the HOAs, everything in both locations. And so, you know, that's, that's a, a really good point. And another point I want to bring out too, about a lot of people are like, well, I, you know, what housing strategy should I follow? And my thing is, is like rent versus buy all this type of stuff. At the end of the day, you don't want to have a more uh, a housing payment when you're in retirement. Okay. Cause I can, I've seen that bankrupt people left and right. And so either A, you're going to rent and accumulate a lot of assets. But like when we do our, our projections with our new technology for our financial planning stuff, what people don't realize is that you have this mortgage payment and that mortgage payment say is flat. And then the housing value keeps going up. But eventually that, that mortgage payment ends. And you don't have that anymore when you're in retirement. You just got to pay your property tax and insurance and that's it. But with rent, it's like, yeah, you can reinvest. And you have those assets that pay, you know, dividends and everything else, but rent keeps going up yep. and rent's going to go up a lot over the next 30 to 40 years. And so there's this, this chasm when we do our rent to buy AI that we're building right now, you just start seeing it go like this 20, 30, 40 years out where it makes way more sense to buy. Um, but like I said, you got to have some type of strategy around it also. Um, so that's something that people don't think about is rent years from now. Like, what's it going to be and how expensive it's going to be? Um, so, yeah, go ahead, uh, Josh, unless you keep going. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I say something similar to that, Joe. I, I say that, you know, renting is like having a adjustable rate mortgage that adjusts every year or can adjust every year. And people that are living through this inflationary time right now and don't have a fixed mortgage payment and are renting, they're, they're, they're really feeling that. 
Um, and so I'm, 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 I'm hugely empathetic for that. Um, I, I don't want to minimize the fact that we have had historic appreciation and the risk factors are higher today. You know, I, I bought my new home three years ago, Joe. It sounds like you bought a new home right around that time. The reality is the risk factors today are higher than they were three years ago. I, you know, hear me, hear me loud and clear. This is, I, there are areas of the country that I would not be a buyer in right now. The, the best tool that I can offer you, um, and this is the process that I developed as I was acquiring my rental properties to try to figure out, is this a good market or a bad market? Um, where are demographics going? Where are jobs going? Is this process? And so we call it the housing market research guide. It's four tips to help you conquer the housing market in 2022. And so um, I, I'll give, I put the link uh, in the chat, uh, uh, Joe, and then I'll have Colin uh, drop it in, or you can drop this link down here in the bottom into the Facebook page as well on the live stream. But when you click on that link, it'll take you to a page where you can download this guide. And this guide is going to walk you through essentially five steps. Number one, you can request a real estate report card. And the report card literally is a, dash bar, a dashboard on the local market that'll give you a high-level overview of everything that's happening in, in the market. It'll show, you, um, it'll show you the number of homes being built, the amount of demand, wages. It's really, really insightful. We'll also give you a, a link so that you can go into your local area and you can check the number of active listings are the number of active listings in my city up or down from last year? Are they trending higher or are they trending lower? And how many days on market? One of the things that is a, a real tell in terms of appreciation or depreciation is the number of days homes stay on the market. If real estate is, stay, is selling in less than 40 days, then that's considered to be a appreciating market, high level of demand. If homes are selling, so sorry, let me make sure I said that right. If they're selling in less than 40 days, then, then there's a high level of demand. They're selling very quickly. If they're selling slower than 40 days, if they're on the market more than 40 days, then that's a market where you may have um, you may have supply starting to outpace demand, and that may mean that your appreciation is going to slow. You may even have depreciation. But in many areas, like just to give you context on average days on market, the average days on market in the entire United States right now is like 18 days. But if you're looking at a market and you're going, wait, days on market's going up, the number of active listings and inventories going up, that's not a great sign. Okay. Um, and then uh, the, the next uh, step, step three, is research on local income and employment data. So what's happening to jobs? Are they coming or are they going? What's happening to wages? Are the wages going up or the wages going down or are they flat? This for me, you know, uh, there, there's, a, there's a small city in Salt Lake City, in, in Utah rather, excuse me, in the southern part of Utah that has... Uh, the demographic increases, population increases four times the size of, uh, four times the, the magnitude of Las Vegas right now. 
and it is leading the nation in, in income increases. That's the market I want to be in. I want to be in a market that's bringing people in, not losing people, and that wages are skyrocketing and unemployment's really low. So that's what that'll help you do. And then step four and step five, we just try to help you understand the value of if you're going to make a decision to buy in your market, we're going to walk you through what a fully underwritten pre-approval looks like. There's pre-qualifications, there's pre-approvals, and then there's an underwriter's approval. With inventory as low as we have it now and homes selling as fast as they are, if you decide to buy, you want to go through a full underwriting approval. This will That step will walk you through it. And then it just gives you some tips on how to locate a local experienced realtor so that you, you get to work with the best of the best if you, if you make that decision. So I'll, uh, we'll drop that link in the chat. And um, folks are also welcome to, of course, email me. Uh, oh, and I got to show one more slide, Joe, so I don't get in trouble with the regulators. All yeah. right, there, there's my disclosure. I've, uh, I've checked the box. <laughs> good, good old disclosures. And oh yeah, by the way, guys, if, if you guys are wondering, um, Fitbox, we still hold a license, a mortgage broker's license. We just don't do anything with it. So yeah, we can talk about this stuff too. <laughs> um, but yeah, we just don't do anything with it. So I, you had to put your disclosures out there. So I might as well disclose that too. Yeah. Um, we have a, a couple different questions. Um, but there's actually, before I get to the questions in the comments, there's going to be two that I, I just wanted to touch on real quick because I, I got one of these. And I have a, a, a podcast coming out on this next week about home buyer, uh, cash buyers in the market. And the guys like BlackRock and a lot of these bigger uh, asset funds buying yeah. in the market. Um, so I don't want to dive too deep into that because that's a whole big topic we can go into. But the main question was, is do you see those buyers in those specific markets, let it be like Austin, Carol like Charlotte, Carolina, all that type of stuff. Do you see those buyers tempering, tempering out of the market at all? Or do you see a lot of cash like just continue to come in and coming in and flooding the market? Because if it does and that continues, which in this podcast, I, my opinion is I'll just give you guys a preview of the podcast. I think it's going to continue that gives a massive support to home value and especially in those specific areas. Um, and that reduces, again, that number that you're looking at the time to market because cash buyers is going to, any market that has cash buyers is going to churn inventory a lot quicker. That's but right. Josh, I know I got that question a lot over the last week. I mean, what do you see that? Do you see that slowing down? Do you see that staying the same just with the cash buying coming that's coming into the market recently? Yeah. Institutional buying from hedge funds, venture capital firms is, is, is at a, a record level from all the data that we can get. Um, Black Knight does some good research around that. And I believe they're looking at it through the same prism that I'm looking at it, which is, you know, if I can get a low cost of funds and I can buy an asset that has a positive cash flow, you know, just, just a few months ago, we were looking at a 10-year treasury yielding 1% or 1.5%. So yeah. if I can go get a 5% or a 7% cash on cash return by buying a real estate property, oh, and by the way, uh, rents are going up massively. If you look at um, annual rent increases for people in a lease, they're going up about 8% per year. But if you look at rent renewals, meaning one tenant moves out and another tenant moves in, that rent increase went up 18%. So now all of a sudden my 7.7 my 7% rate of return is 8.2% rate of return in year 2 and if they 
if they extrapolate that out over 10 years, they're going to do a lot better than they would have in treasuries. That's for sure. Now yep. there's more management and there's more work there. And I don't want to discount the fact that there's more cost in owning those rental properties. But I think a lot of these institutional buyers saw inflation coming. They, they understood what was happening to monetary supply. They understood the recipe for inflation that Milton Friedman gave us. They understood the fact that we're 4 million homes short. And they added the, the equation together and said, I think rents are going up and I think home prices are going to go up. We need to buy these, these properties, these residential properties. Now, what would be the counter argument to that? The counter argument to that is we're no longer in a quantitative easing market. We're in a quantitative con contraction as it relates to monetary supply and what the Federal Reserve is doing. So maybe they are starting to have less liquidity. Um, potentially, I'm assuming their cost of funds is starting to go up. So maybe it's not quite as lucrative as it was, but I still think they're going to do a heck of a lot better putting their money there than they are buying 10-year buying treasuries. Yep, absolutely. Um, one last question from myself, and then I'll go into uh, some of the questions that we got in the comments. Um, actually, it's not for myself, but a question that we get all the time sure. is information about the uh, physician home loan. So again, most of our audience are not MDs and physicians, but a yep. lot of them qualify because of what their profession is. Yep. Their main thing is one, they can't find somebody that offers it in their state, which I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you guys offer it in 49 different states. Um, but they also just, what are the details? What do they need to know about those types of loans? So since we have you on, you know, you know feel free to answer this and, and then yeah, go from there. Yeah, allow me to define what a medical professional or physician loan or doctor mortgage, let me define what it is first. So the, the advantages of that type of loan, number one, um, you can put less than 20% down and you can either completely avoid mortgage insurance. There's a few loans out there that have mortgage insurance, but it's about a half the amount mortgage insurance cost as like an FHA or conventional loan. So there's either no mortgage insurance or reduced mortgage insurance. The other benefit is it will go to jumbo loan amounts and allow less than 20% down. So typically, if you get in that loan amount range above 647,000, which is the, the conforming loan limit, you get into the jumbo range, typically you're going to need 20% down. Sometimes you get away with 15% down. But these medical professional loans will allow you to do as little as 5% down all the way to 2 million. Um, and I don't know how many, you know, how many viewers you have and how much in your, in your tribe buy $2 million homes. Maybe nobody would ever use that, but certainly that that's an advantage in, in some of the higher cost of living areas. The other thing is that conventional loans and FHA loans, government backed loans, they typically have a guideline that says if someone's a 1099 independent contractor, or if someone is self-employed, they have to have two years tax returns in order to prove that income, that that income, that's you know that's similar. We saw that curve where the product risk had gone to virtually you know zero. That's one of those areas that I think product risk has gone way too far. Like we can we can figure out what a medical professional is going to make before two years, okay? <laughs> but the conventional loans haven't caught up to that. They want a two-year tax return history, which means if somebody took a job in June or July or August, they got to work that year plus two more years to have two full years of tax returns. 
So the medical professional home loan will allow you to qualify in some instances with, with just an offer letter, even if somebody's a 1099 independent contractor. So they're more liberal with their underwriting guidelines there. And as it relates to student loan indebtedness, medical professional loans will allow a borrower to qualify based off an income-driven repayment amount. doesn't matter if you're an IBR, um, pay as you earn, doesn't matter, any of those programs. If you're in a minimum payment under one of those income-based payments, the medical professional program will allow you to use that as a qualifying factor, where a conventional loan will say, uh-uh-uh, you have $200,000 in student loans. I see your payment's only $187 a month, but we're going to factor a fully amortizing payment of 1% of the outstanding balance. We're going to hit you as if you were making a $2,000 a month payment. Now you don't qualify for a $500,000 home. You only qualify for a $275,000 home. Um, and then one last thing, Joe, this is really important for your viewers who are relocating across the country. Typically, if someone's if taking a new job, and let's just assume they're a W-2 employee with a salary or an hourly rate, typically an underwriter wants to see two paycheck stubs, 30 days worth of income history. A medical professional loan will allow you to use an offer letter or an employment contract and close up to 90 days before the start of the new job, which is huge. You, you know, when you moved to Austin, you didn't want to move work 30 days or 45 days until you had two paycheck stubs and then buy a home. You wanted to move and move your family in and get settled and, you know, and then go about your, your job. So, so those are the major benefits of a medical professional loan. And, and for many years, the medical, that loan was only really available to doctors, physicians, dentists, veterinarians in some instances. And we've expanded that scope to include um, uh, medical professionals that, you know, any, anything with, a, with an advanced degree that falls into that um, kind of that mid-tier uh, category will, will qualify for that medical professional program. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, I know you, you touched on this already and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up again because we did get this question. When we, we, we answered this, we, we framed it in, you know, what's the positive markets that you're looking for? Like what positive signs? But I want you to reiterate it again, but in the negatives, like if you're looking at this type of location, here are two or three things that if I see these numbers, I'm not buying in that area, yeah. like yeah. period. So just reiterate that because um, I know that we got some questions on that. Just, you know, what are those, like if I see this number, just check, you know, I'm out of there. Like what, what are those that are oh, those kind of those knockout numbers for you? I, I would recommend that people Google um, price to rent ratio and a price to rent ratio, like the worst price to rent ratio in the country is San Francisco. Yeah. The average home price is in the millions. I can't remember exactly what it is, but if you look at the ratio of rent that that $2 million house is going to get as compared to the $2 million price, it has the worst price to rent ratio in the entire country. That scares me, man, because if, if I have to move out of that home in a down market, it tells me I'm going to get my clock cleaned because I'm going to get a little rent, but I may have a big mortgage. Yeah. Any of those areas that are in that, that, high, that I consider high risk if the price to rent ratio is, is extreme. So if I'm looking at a market that has a reasonable or, or, or low price to rent ratio, that's a great start. And, and tells me in the worst case scenario, 
there's probably a good possibility I'm going to be able to rent this home out for break-even or approximately break-even. Or if I wait five years, probably likely I'm going to have a positive cash flow. So that's one thing I would look at. And that's going to really alert you to your really high cost of living areas. They're going to stick out. You're going to see that, you know, they, they go through and they, they rank like every major metropolitan city in the, in the, in the country on, uh, on that website. The other thing I would look at, and, and this is in the, the guide, you know, I want to know demographics. Are people moving in or is population exiting this, this metro? What's happening with the employment rate? Is the employment rate going up or is the employment rate going down? What's happening with wages? Are wages going up or is wages going down? And when I, if I can get my arms wrapped around those four things, what's the price to rent ratio? Is the population increasing or decreasing? Is uh, unemployment going down or up? And are wages going up or down? Once I, once I see that, it's like the, you know, the equation or the picture starts to be clear. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's, it's funny because I get those questions all the time about ratios and stuff because, yeah, people know my background on, on being an analyst. And it's like, I haven't looked at really much in the housing like investor area for years, uh, primarily because it's like, you know, I don't think, I, I don't know if I told you this, Josh, but like I grew up around real estate investments. Ah. And I'm like, my, like my dad like hates the stock market and I'm like the complete opposite. So I'm all about the, the, the stock market. <laughs> so it's like, those are the ratios I know inside and out. Right. Uh, the housing stuff. I'm like, you know, I'll look at that later. I'm too busy. Like, <laughs> you know, with big folks, but so that's good to, to know. Um, we got a couple more questions too. Um, and, you know, Adam was asking like, given how competitive the market is right now, do you think taking a medical professional home loan with less than 20% down to be a to, uh, potential deterrent from getting your offer accepted. So, Great question. you know, and for those of you that don't understand what Adam's talking about, it's not just about getting a loan. You got to get your offer accepted by the seller and the seller most of the time, especially in a market where people are moving so much, they're going to want a, an offer that they know is going to close. And that's why cash offers most of the time beat out other offers. Um, so what Adam's asking is if somebody sees a medical professional home, let's say 90% loan to value, hundred percent loan to value, whatever it is, is that less likely to get accepted? Okay. So that, that's what the question is. Josh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, it's a great question. And that's why we put this as, as step number four on the, on the research guide, because you, you want to have a fully underwritten pre-approval, meaning that an underwriter has literally reviewed your file and approved your income, your assets, your credit history, and, and you're qualified. And then you want to work with an experienced local realtor who is an expert. I will tell you right now, and that's step five, I will tell you, I'll tell you right now, it's your realtor's reputation has never been more important because great realtors are known in the community. And when you come with a fully underwritten approval, and you come, we are uh, uh, the realtor representing you has a great local reputation of getting deals done and been around in the market forever. That will overcome the disadvantages of not having 20% down or so. The other thing that we work with clients with all the time, Joe, is we say, look, appraisals are backwards looking views of what the value of housing is. 
And sellers are looking at what's listed today. They're looking forward. Well, my house is worth, right? Everybody's more emotionally tied and think their home is, less, is worth more than their neighbor's home. So, so the seller's opinion is forward looking. The appraiser's view on value is rear view looking. And in the middle is becomes an appraisal gap, meaning that sometimes the appraisal can come in lower than the purchase price. So the other thing that we, we counsel clients and advise clients on is, look, let's talk through worst case scenario here. Let's say you were getting a 95% loan. Let's say you were getting a 100% loan. But what if the appraisal comes in 25,000 low? Let's talk through what that would look like and create a contingency plan. And when we can go to a selling agent and, 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 and our mortgage advisors get involved with the realtor to present offers to selling agents, we say, look, this loan's been fully underwritten and approved. We've already worked through an appraisal gap strategy in the event that the appraisal comes in low. We can close almost as fast as a cash offer because we've already gone through the underwriting process. And we're working with Joe, who's the local rock star realtor. And you know, Joe's going to get this deal done. Like you have to build your case in this market to, to get offers accepted. We had one last week, Joe, uh, that the house was listed on uh, Thursday morning. They planned to do an open house on Saturday and Sunday. And by Friday night, they closed and said no more offers. They had 23 offers and, and many of them above, above the offer price. Like it's, it's full on combat right now. And you need to have every advantage you possibly can if you decide that it's time to buy a house. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, and this was even a hot, this was a hot market in Austin three years ago. It's way hotter now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll give me an example. Like we came out to put cash offers in and our first two offers got turned down. Um, like it was like, what? Right. And like my, my, one of my good friends just moved out here from California and he's renting. And within one day, every place that he put in an offer for like an application for rent had over 30 applications for renting. Wow. That's how many people are moving here. So again, it's like, like Josh was saying, make sure you have all your ducks in an order because people are not going to wait for you. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Michelle asked with Neo Home Loans, which state are you not offered in? New York. New York. All right. Yeah. A lot of compliance there. I, a lot of compliance. <laughs> lot of, yes, I think York. they've got more attorneys per capita and more legislators per capita than any other state in the country. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. When it comes to mortgages, insurances, everything else, it's a nightmare in New York. Um, some of the other questions, let me just cycle through these, make sure I, I got everything. Cause there's a, a couple of them that are specific. I'll touch on the, the investment ones first. Um, so in our groups, by the way, we have a lot of travelers. So like travel OTs, travel uh, nurses, travel PTs. Um, and so their thing is like, well, should I buy? Um, should I buy? And then if I move rent, and what I typically say is if you're going to buy something on there, you actually have an advantage because you can actually qualify um, for a primary residential mortgage instead of an investor mortgage because you're living in the property. And so if you buy like a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, you can start renting it right away and you're renting one of the rooms. And then when you move out, the next place you go, you can buy another one and get another primary loan if, if you need to. Sometimes it's a little tough though, because a lot of the travelers, they get paid salary and stipend. So the stipend doesn't show up as income because it shows up as basically a tax-free stipend. And so a lot of them have to go out and find partners to buy these properties. And so that, that's typically just the general high level overview that we give to people that are traveling. 
Um, even some of those people that you brought up like 1099 income or whatnot, or, or commission-based income going in with a partner for those people, just from an investment standpoint, any other advice to add on to that in terms of potentially qualifying for a mortgage, you know, different strategies to potentially buy a place um, and then rent it. Would you do that in this market? Like you said, you know, it is a long-term strategy to buy and rent, but just because you buy and rent and you move to a new place doesn't mean you can buy another place when you move because your income might not justify it. Any, any thoughts on all that? Anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, great, great question. You know, I, I, we've been talking to our database and, and, and past clients and saying, you know, if, if you're looking to potentially inflation-proof your retirement, consider turning the home that you're in now into an investment property because, you know, we, we follow up with, with clients forever. We constantly monitor their, their mortgage rates. We constantly monitor their equity. We show them how much equity they have. And whenever there's an opportunity for them to restructure their indebtedness, we proactively reach out to them. So the vast majority of our past clients have very, very low interest rates. And, 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 and the question comes up, hey, I might be interested in investing in real estate. The, the easiest, lowest hanging fruit is turn your property you're in right now, in, unless it's a you know, million, you know, high, super high end home, but turn that home into an investment property because you've got that super low rate and then go get a 95 or 100% financing on the new home. You know, yes, your payment's going to go up, but you're going to have the positive cash flow from the home that you exit. And oftentimes that positive cash flow will really bridge the gap of what, what the new house costs. So I think that's an excellent strategy. You can also, if you buy, like you said, Joe, a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, you can use the rental income that is being uh, generated from those other units to offset the payment. So that can help you qualify um, if you've got some, some uniqueness or, uh, to, your, to your income. And then the other thing I would just say is that you know, some of the medical professional programs will allow us to use stipend if there's a history of receiving that stipend and if it's likely to continue. Um, we, we, NEO literally bends over backwards to try to approve loans. And the, the, the point where we can't get there is when there's actually a law that was enacted in the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 that says a borrower has to prove, excuse me, the lender has to prove the borrower's ability to repay the indebtedness. That's actually a law that if we make a loan and we can't prove your ability to repay it, that then um, we have to forgive the interest that was charged on the loan over the life of the loan. And potentially the lender might have to forgive the entire mortgage indebtedness. So it's serious, right? Um, so whenever we will bend over backwards to the point of we have to be able to prove somebody's ability to repay the law, the loan, so we don't break that law. But we're we get an unfortunate amount of business from people who are declined by two or three other lenders. They come to us and they fit inside, and we can qualify them with our medical professional programs. Yep, perfect. And this this piggybacks off that, but more so because. I know I've, I've been seeing a lot of, of this lately too. A lot of people will ask us like, you know, they might live in, in an Austin, Texas or a San Jose, California or a New York where rental prices are just through the moon. Uh, and I'm not sorry, not rental prices, uh, home prices, just, yeah. just in general, but they want to get in the, 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 to the real estate industry. And so, but they're nervous because one, it's like, well, how do I buy this, this place somewhere else? And two, 
property management? Like, what do I, what do I do there? Um, any, in, any input on that, any advice on that? Yeah, it's funny. I'm doing a podcast, I think later this month or early next month with a lady who owns an, a, um, a property management company that manages single family rentals, maybe even some small apartment buildings. And they're in like 17 states. And I, I asked her on the show because I said, can, can you tell me what, what litmus test I can apply to a property manager to tell me if it's going to be a good or a bad property manager? Like, how do I, how do I judge them? How do I gauge their, their experience and their capability? So I'm excited for that, that podcast show. I'll share it with you once I've recorded it. <clears throat> but the strategy I've seen a lot of people employ that live in you know, California, let's just say, is that they'll rent in California and they buy their investment properties in Alabama, Georgia, smaller areas of Florida, kind of those, you know, those, those lower cost of living states. By the way, how do you get a list of those states? Go to, the, go to the price to rent ratio and find the states that have the, the lowest price to rent ratio. Those are the areas where you can generally create cash flow. And if you can find a good management company there, you could probably do quite well. But one caveat. Like there's, there's, I think the, the, the lowest price to rent ratio, uh, the, so that'd be like the best as an investor is Detroit, but does Detroit pass the rest of those litmus tests? It is population moving in or out is unemployment going up or down and is incomes, uh, are incomes going up or down? I, I don't, I don't know that, but that's the litmus test. I would want to overlay to the price to rent ratio. Yep. Perfect. This one's more market specific. Um, would you buy in the Salt Lake City market? Specifically, we're renting in the avenues in, in Salt Lake City. We'd like to stay nearby if possible. I mean, I know you guys are in Utah. I don't know if you know the Salt Lake City market inside and out, but um, that's, that's, uh, that was one of the questions. Yeah, the Salt Lake market is one of the hottest, hottest markets in the entire country. It has the second highest population growth, the United States as a country had a population growth last year of 0.1%. Utah had 1.7%. So 17 times as fast a population growth. Um, wage growth is amongst the hot, highest in the country. And Utah was the only state that had an increase of, employ of employment growth through COVID, literally yep. one state in the entire country. And so um, housing prices have gone parabolic, like, like many other places in the country. But I can tell you that the underpinnings of that market is the strongest in the entire country, in my belief, um, based on all the data that I've researched, because that is my backyard. And, and interestingly enough, like, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Let me, let me, show, you, uh, let me, show, let me show you this last slide. This is so if we look at appreciation since 1991, nationally up 274%. Utah is the number one appreciating market in the entire country, up 556% in housing prices. The reason for that is it is a massive economic boom going on in, in Utah. And the center of Utah is Salt Lake. And then there's some other hot areas there. But but let me go back to one thing you said earlier, Joe, because you were spot on. If your timeline's under five years. I'd probably rent uh, if you think there's a high probability of you moving. If, you're, if, you're, if your timeline's five years or more, 
I believe it's one of the safest markets to buy in, even though prices are nosebleed high. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but the, the economics are just booming in Utah. It's literally the number one state in the country right now. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's, it actually reminds me a lot of like Austin, because again, people ask me out here, like I bought my place out here three years ago and it's appreciated two and a half times already. And people are like, well, is it a good time to buy? And it's like, Tesla hasn't even opened their factory. That's 10 minutes south of me. Like Amazon just opened up the biggest distribution center. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Samsung just announced a $16 billion facility they're building 10 minutes north of us. Like there, you look at the companies that are moving in the economic fundamentals. It's like, you know, I look at it and I like, I drive literally a block away from my house and I'm in, I'm in a farm. And it's yeah. like, there's so much real estate out here what's driving these values. But to your point, the inventory, they can't build fast enough. Um, I mean, since I bought out here, there's literally been 50,000 houses put up around where I live within three years. And that's not even close to enough of what they need. And Salt Lake City from, I mean, of course, you know this, that area more than I do, but from what I've heard, it's the same thing. It's yeah. just going through the roof. Um, we do have another question that's actually a really good one. Um, how do you find an exceptional realtor? Um, especially like, for example, the, uh, Deborah, she's moving from Salt Lake city to Atlanta. So how do you go out and start researching? I've been for me personally, cause I get asked about like mortgage brokers all the time, property managers, like property managers. My research was my, my dad, like he, he researched this shit for a long time. So the guys that we have in San Jose, I don't have to research anybody. I just say, right. Lewis, like that's who I'm hiring. And I don't care what he charges me because I know that he's going to do it because my dad just interrogated him like none other. <laughs> and um, he's going to take care of your asset. Yeah, realtors like Austin, I know people uh, that are really good. In San Jose, I know people really good. But I personally, like even when I came out to Austin, I, I reached out to people that I know in San Jose and said, who do you know in Austin that's really good? And they know me, how analytical I am. So they're like, go to this person. But to go out, without knowing anybody in, in say Atlanta, like I know nobody in Atlanta. So I would, I would go back to my resources and say, do you know anybody in Atlanta? But they might be like, no shot. I have no idea. How would you go about finding a realtor in, in a certain area? Well, you hit on the, 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 one of the two ways that I would recommend. Number one, do you know somebody there and have they had a personal experience with that realtor? Um, or are you joining a program that you know, most of those programs have a program director, somebody in charge of orientation, somebody that is associated with that local medical community that represents realtors. I mean, most, most, most medical communities or hospital systems, they have a, a, a wife or a husband that you know, works in the medical community and their spouse does real estate and they do all kinds of relocation. That's a great referral. That's, that's what you're looking for. The other, the other, and if you don't, if you don't have that kind of a warm lead, like they don't, they don't have somebody to refer you to. We spent the last 10 years putting together a database of realtors in virtually every major metropolitan market in the country. And these are, these are um, real estate professionals that we've worked with their clients buying homes. So we got to see, you know, how did the client rank them, but we also got to see how they negotiate, how they work with us. And, and how they negotiate with the other side. 
So we have a list of, of realtors that are mostly focused on medical professionals across the country. We'd be happy to provide one for your area uh, or referral exactly as you said, Joe. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. And and by the way, guys, a lot of you guys that had, you know, watch our podcast, blogs and stuff, you know that we're working on our financial planning technology. That's the main thing that we're trying to get out all this year. Um, in addition to that, like some of these things that you guys are asking about, like like the mortgage stuff, the real estate agents, we've started to put out fillers out there to get like those types of things onto the platform also. So when you're ready, it's like you put in the zip code, you put in the area and here's the list of realtors, um, you know, that type of stuff. Since we are medical professionals, one of the things is, is getting medical professional for mortgages that, that people that know the medical industry. So like Neo Home Loans and having those relationships. Unfortunately, I know, Deborah, you're moving in July, so I can guarantee you that we're not going to have it ready by July. Um, but yeah, those, you know, that's a good point that you brought up, Josh. I didn't even think about that, about some of these facilities. Like, you know, I, I go back to when my wife bought her place in San Jose. I mean, what she did was she at first asked the people that she worked with and they introduced her to some people. Um, and that's actually how she ended up meeting her real estate agent and I mean this girl that she was introduced to I mean I know people in San Jose I grew up there and I will not use any of the realtors that I, I knew before I met this girl because she's that good and my wife met her through her connections yeah okay um, the mortgage stuff again like in San Jose the mortgage guys that I had met. That's why one of the big things that I met my wife, because I met her right around the time and I was in mortgages. Hmm. And it was like, yeah, this is what you would have to do. And this is what I would also be buying. Um, and then she took that and went in and did it. And then she asked me out afterwards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> so, um, so long story short, anyways, um, good stuff. I, I'm just going through, just looking at the questions. I think that's all the questions that we had. Great questions. Uh, you know, by the way, I didn't mention on the live chat, Josh, I know you know this, I have COVID. So my head started a little bit too from, from being awake. I should probably go lay down before I, uh, I pass out from sinus problems. But um, anyways, wrapping it up, any last words, anything else? Of course, talk about how people can get a hold of you. I'll put the links in, you know, in the comments and all that type of stuff. Um, but any other comments that you would like to wrap up on? Yeah, I just, you know, want to, want to share my, um, my empathy and my understanding that this is a insanely difficult market with low inventory and it's really challenging around the United States. And, um, and the, the best advice I can give you is to download that five-step guide, invest the time. Like it's not going to take you more than a couple of hours an hour maybe to go through that entire process and do all the research. But at the end of it, you're either going to have serious doubt and you should probably rent in those areas, or you're going to feel really confident that this is an economy that's growing and unemployment levels are going down and wages are going up and all those things look like the, that things are growing. But my, my closing words would be, do the work, do the research. Don't just fly blind and just buy a house without doing the work. And to the extent that we can help you, to the extent we can make an introduction, to the extent we can help you um, get a market guide in your local area, we'd be honored to help and honored to serve. So hey! that's because I always <laughs> talk about my five-year-old 
And she uh, apparently wants to play a dinosaur video game, which is why she grabbed a PlayStation controller, because I told her I would teach her tonight how to how to play it. I, th- and, I think that's a wrap, Joe. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, you know, can you bring, you know, your your daughter in a live chat or whatnot? Because she travels with me sometimes when I do my workshops, huh? So did you say hi, everybody? Hi. So, all right, I'll be on in just a minute, okay? All right. Oh, she's precious. <laughs> so I got perfect. a 10-year-old. They grow up so fast, man. Enjoy every day, every every minute of the journey. Absolutely. And I actually have a video because a lot of people that are in our groups are PTs. And so she's, I, I filmed the video of her the other day. She's working on my neck. She's kind of copy mom. Uh, <laughs> That's so um, awesome. She's already doing it. She's already doing it. Um, so with that, thanks for coming. Everybody that jumped onto the live chat, you know, thanks again. I know um, a lot of you have said about the resources and stuff, and I'll put the links up again. Um, and Josh, thanks. And it was awesome. And hopefully we'll be talking soon again. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was absolutely great hanging out with you. Thanks, Joe. Yep. Cool. All great right. job. Hold on, just a second, little one. I'll be up in give me five minutes. Okay. All right. You, that was time, perfect timing by you. Perfect timing. Time, huh? Give me five minutes and then I'll be done. Okay. Can you tell mommy to go start the game? And I'll come out there. Okay. I'll come out there in five minutes. Okay. And ask mommy how to do it. <laughs> she doesn't know. Oh, she doesn't. You know more than mommy, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'll be down there. Give me, give me five minutes. I'll be down there. Okay. I'll count for five. Eight. Okay. What time? It's seven two seven. So when the clock says seven two uh, three two, I'll be down there. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah. Awesome. I. I, I mean, so you you saw towards the end there, like the engagement and the questions. That was great. Right. So, like, we get those questions all the time. And so, like, when we talked about being able to send people traffic, like, I know that we could send traffic. And if we start marketing anything on mortgages, just to, you know, the 58,000 people on Facebook, but if we narrow that down to the 11,000 people on our platform, like, it might take us six months to ramp that volume up. But I mean, to do 10 to 30 loans off that audience a month would be easy. I mean, I'll just give you an example. Like we, we've done no marketing in the last two years. And so at the end of March, I reached out to uh, USC, UNLV, Mount St. Mary's, Azusa Pacific, uh, and Bernal, and those five schools. And I just said, look, we're going to start doing workshops again. You guys want to do these for the, the graduating class. We rushed them and, and we did it. And off those five graduating classes, we had uh, uh, 500 to 600 people that we already built profiles for. Wow. Like that. And that's what we would get. And then we had this deal with the APTA where it's literally 9,000 graduating students every single year. And that's who we're trying to get in front of just from that one association. And so it's like, Again, the, the traffic that could be driven from this stuff, if we market it, would be awesome. Yeah. Um, one question I did have for you, because we do get that question about realtors all the time. You guys brought up the database. Is there, because one of the things our board asked me when we talked about the market, it's the marketing service agreement, is, is there any way we do that with realtors? I, because- I believe there is. Um, 
here's what I would recommend. Uh, there's a, a, a buddy of mine who owns a company called Digit. Okay. Uh, I think it's D-I-J-J-I-T. And it's a software system that we can, you know, we've got a database of people we've, we've worked with. Um, uh, this gentleman's also a realtor, but he, he, he created this, this software where he can essentially place, put a zip code or a city in, and it'll pull up the realtors in, in, his, in this database and rank them based on client satisfaction scores and their ability to get deals done. And that's the system that we use that's right in our CRM. So I should introduce you to Jake. And uh, the cool thing about real estate is if you have a real estate license, there's no restriction of them paying you a portion of the referral fee. Um, in mortgages, there's more restrictions around it. You have to create the MSA, but there's a lo much lower bar in real estate. Okay. Yeah. Cause I would, I would love, like, again, it, I don't know how fast we'll be able to roll it out because of how much financial planning stuff we're building right now. But the goal is to come out with this huge tire package where it's like, like the, the same thing we did with student loans, where it's like, boom, boom, boom. Here's a realtor. Here's this, here's this, here's this. And those ranking systems and all that type of stuff. Like, I don't want to create that. I, I have no desire to do that. Yeah. And it's like with mortgages, it's okay. You can leave it open. Um, I mean, we just need two. So like if we do a market service agreements, like you and then like one other company, why? Because of compliance. Like the yeah. way we market, we say, look, we're going to give you the option. These are the two best, but we always have to have a minimum of two. Like our lawyers, like regardless of what you do two. like yeah. even if you primarily make one really big, you'd still have a second one somewhere in there. And it's like, okay. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, uh, let's do this. I'm, I'm traveling the rest of this week, but why don't we, why don't you, I, and, and Jake, who is the owner of Digit, try to reconnect back up next week sometime. Do you have a scheduling link, like a Calendly or something like that? I could look at the available slots in your calendar. I, I do. Let me, <laughs> I have about 15 of them. Um, okay. <laughs> let me pull up the right one. We have said a lot of different ones because of the different users that come under our platform. Yeah. And then when I have meetings, I, I set up different things that block out different calendars for different people. <laughs> like, yeah. In the afternoon, I don't want to talk with certain people because it's like I'm doing other things. Let me um, just if, will you just email me one? So I, I don't want to hold you so you can, you know, go have some daddy time. But if you'll just email it to me, I'll get on the phone with Jake. We'll find a time that works. We'll put an appointment in your calendar and then let's, uh, you know, we can talk digit and we can talk next steps for us as well. Yeah, let me 9 a.m. This one, this one should work. Um, I'll just put it, let me put it in the chat box so you have it right now. Perfect. Because um, my emails, I shut everything down because of Got Zoom. Got it. And I'll run correctly. So that was my quote unquote morning calendar. So that's most of the time when I do all my business stuff. So that's going to show the most openings uh, type of stuff on there. Perfect. Um, all right. Very good. I will, um, I will get with Jake. We'll get that scheduled. I hope you have fun playing with your daughter and I hope you get well soon. Perfect. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Joe. Talk to you soon, buddy. Take care. Bye.